Lord, we are, are thankful that we can come into a place uh, and for a moment, Lord, remember that we are covered by your, your grace, especially when we come in off out of days and weeks that are often hectic and um, full of uh, often conflict. We can come into this place and remember that fundamentally we operate as those who are not have not been abandoned, but as those um, who are covered by your grace. Lord, I pray that we would uh, be able to hear your voice come through Scripture tonight. Well, that same voice that inspired Scripture so many uh, years ago, that it would, uh, that same voice that is uh, alive and well by your Holy Spirit now, that you would bring this text alive to us tonight. That we would know what is true and leave this place renewed. In your name, amen. Welcome. Tonight, uh, we are continuing on in this series that we are, uh, on the life of David that we're calling Running at Giants. And, and really what we're looking at is, is the life of one of the great heroes of the faith. One of the, one of the kind of giants, if I can, if I can switch that term, that one of the giants of the Old Testament that, that helps us look forward to the coming Christ. And the story that we, the thing about David that, that, that one of the things I want to push again and again is that David is not a life that we're supposed to perfectly follow. I mean, he does some gruesome and brutal things. We're not supposed to just say, well, I want to be like David, and so I'm going to go out and, and kill a bunch of people. Okay? Right. Some of the stuff that happens to, in, in this particular text tonight, uh, he cuts off some things that we're not supposed to go around cutting off. All right? I'll let you, that'll challenge you to get into the text to figure out what I'm talking about. The thing about David, though, is that he lives a life with everything he has running at God to encounter God. And so what happens is there's this wonderful convergence between heaven and earth, between the divine and the mundane in a way that helps us understand what it is to be truly human. Not perfect in this technical sense, but more alive than ever, more mature than ever. Well, as we continue on with this story... Turns out that this particular chapter in David's life is a chapter in which he actually isn't the main person. He's not the main actor. And that's actually true for a lot of our lives too, if you think about it. There are moments, I'm, I'm sure, in every one of our lives where we realize that in our story, we're really not the main actor. We have been carried along by those who have come alongside us, who have rescued us, who have challenged us, who have said, you can do it, have encouraged us when we felt like we couldn't go on. And that's true tonight as we look at the friendship of David and Jonathan. This is one of those things that is so sort of fundamental to us that we're going to look at it tonight and we're also going to look at it next week. And so next week we're going to do something a bit different just to give you a little teaser on what's happening. I'm going to have uh, three, I'm going to say three friends. I can easily say three friends coming in this next week and, um, and just sharing. I, I'm going to challenge them to sort of come up sort of with, with one scripture that has really helped them uh, understand what it means to, to run into a friendship that helps them thrive through the mess. And we're going to kind of have a back and forth this next week. So you get, be here for that. But really, there's a more important question that we need to deal with right off the top. And the question is this. How many friends do you have? I got 266. <laughs> All right? 266. And I'm really proud of that because I called up my wife and I said, who has been putting my, kind of shoving my face in it, that she has more friends than I do. For, I mean, ever since we got on Facebook, she just keeps talking about how many friends she has. And she's always on Facebook. And sometimes I would like to be able to talk to her at night, but she says she's got to check statuses. <laughs> I said, so how many friends do you have? And suddenly she was like, I don't know, like 250. 
I was like, oh yeah, well I got 266. She, what? what? I, I'll call you right back. She hasn't called, by the way. So little competition. I got a, there's there's a prize on the line. Okay, most friends, Facebook friends, 200. Let's start with 200. Okay, we got to start baseline 250 because you got to at least beat the mom with two kids at home. Okay, so uh, 500. Hands up, 500 friends. Okay, all right. I, I know I raised the bar a little bit. 500, uh, 600 friends. Ooh, six, oh, nice. It looks like we just shifted right over here. Nice. Okay, 700. 650. Okay, how many? Okay, how many? Back there. Yeah. 800. Ooh, you're Ryan Church, practically. And? Six, all right. Looks like Chris McCoy. So here's the, here's the deal. A little, uh, coffee card for you, okay? Because here's the deal. We know that something like Facebook is a great tool, right? It's a great way to connect. It's a great way to keep people up. But it, maybe you're like my friend who, has, as I was checking out my Facebook page today, what wrote actually on his status, you know, I'm excited about connecting online, but how about we just like go and sit around a campfire, right? There's something about face-to-face. And that's the, that's the important thing on a social networking, right? Is the sense that it brought, draws us together. So there you go, Chris, a chance to, to hang out with one of your friends face-to-face. Well, that's the thing. All right. Yeah, give the guy a hand. That's some serious, that's some serious networking. Well, there has been, you know, there's a host of new technologies out there that are cool. I mean, you have Facebook, you have, you started with blogs, you have, uh, you know, classmates.com where you're hooking up with all these people you, you were hoping you left in high school, but suddenly you're back in your life. Uh, I, there's something in a coffee shop I was at the other day. This, this kind of cool big screen thing where you can, you kind of pictures of, yourself and what you've done and it kind of pop up when you as soon as you kind of walk in the coffee shop and so that's it, a way to interact i don't know it's a little weird but i think i'm actually going to try it so you know be looking around the u district for pic- pictures of me i guess i don't know well it's it's a exciting time but there's a lot of ways there's a challenge that's out there why this stuff is blooming why there's all these different networking uh sort of technologies that are coming out because there's there really is there's a void that has uh opened up there's a void that has opened up. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we're more mobile than we ever have been before. In such a way that we're not no longer rooted in communities where we're known at all. I mean that we're, we're also, a lot of us are starting jobs. We're in jobs in which we're working longer and longer hours. We're able to, 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 to connect with people in ways that we've never done before. Social structures that used to kind of restrict us. I mean, there, there's something good about being known in a small community. I grew up in a small community. Everybody knew me. Okay, it was at one hand really awesome. It was great. Everybody knew me. And the other hand, everybody knew me. <laughs> right? I was a pastor's grandkid and I was a teacher's son. Like, I think I've shared with you before. I got in trouble before I even got home. Like, my parents knew exactly what happened. I didn't need to tell them what happened. Because it ends up that one of, uh, one of our best friends would just, would clue him in. When I got in trouble, I got in trouble with my, with uh, my best friend's dad. I mean, he was my teacher. It was that kind of a thing. Now, that's wonderful in, in some ways, but it's restrictive in others. Well, we have less and less things that are whole, binding us together. And unfortunately, more and more of us know what it's like to have even some, an institution like something like marriage not really work out. More and more of us know what it's like to not have kind of a stable place to even look at that most intimate of relationships. We're at this kind of this interesting kind of juxtaposition where we have so much freedom we have so much independence. We can focus on what we want to do more than any other time 
in history. We have more resources available to us. And yet for all that, and even, even for the hyper-connection in which we can be connected in web around the world, like I, I love the fact that I was able to Skype with, with my cousin who was in Afghanistan, flying as a missionary pilot about a year ago. But for all that, we are lonelier than ever before. There's a writer who did some sociological research kind of on the current situation, and especially for those in their 20s and 30s, who writes that, We now have four times as many people who would say that they are feeling lonely today as they did 50 years ago. Four times as people who feel totally isolated, lonely. And and her main kind of thing that she's getting across in this book is that we have more freedom than ever before, and yet we are more isolated, lonely, and depressed. Depression is way up. I mean, it... Over and over again, we read research about that, that somehow we are hyper-connected and not connected at all. I mean, many of you know what this is like. It's what it's like to move to a, a new city and have to start all over again and not know a single person and have to develop a new network of, of friends, of people that, can, that you can draw on. You don't even know some of the people you work with. You don't even know your way around the city. But even those of us who have been here for a long time, who have settled in, know that it's hard. It's really hard. I struggle with this all the time to connect with the people that I want to connect with most because, man, my schedule is just so, so busy. Life in a big city, there might be a lot more people, but there's a lot more people. So it feels like you can never really connect. Well, I don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not a technophobe in any way. I think some of the new networking stuff is awesome. And yet, it ends up being in some ways without there being something bigger, just more, really more junk food. All the texts, all the emails, all, all the sites that we can connect on end up being more junk food to our soul when what we're longing for is that face-to-face interaction. And so we have to recognize that these things, put them in their proper place, that they are tools. They are tools to, to network us in some amazing ways. And yet, what we need to learn is something deeper that we can find in this ancient, ancient story that will help us get a hold of what we really are longing for, which is that sense to know somebody deeply and intimately and to be known as well. Well, this ancient story of, the, of Jonathan and David will lead that. It'll, it'll be a model for us. It'll instruct us on what it means to run headlong, full bore into this thing that might feel like a giant. But on the other side is a rich, meaningful friendship. So we'll jump right in. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in, in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel and be kind of, kind of popping in and out, uh, throughout, uh, chapter 20. Uh, if, uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to go back this week. I encourage you to bring them, number one, but also go back this week and hang out in, in these three chapters and just kind of read through after, after we've talked about it tonight. Well, let me start in verse one of chapter 18 where we read this. And this comes right after David and Goliath. Okay, It's almost that sense that David sort of walks off the battlefield with Goliath and, and Jonathan is there waiting for him And where we read these words. That after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one, one in spirit with David. And he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Well, the first thing, there's kind of four things I want to draw out tonight. And some of these we're going to have to go through faster than others. But four things that help us in developing friendships that will help us through the mess. 
help us develop deep friendships. And the first is this, is that friendships have to be about something bigger than you. Now, we're only going to find a couple of these deep friendships in our lives. I mean, that's that's the thing. These things don't, friendships, deep friendships only come along kind of a couple in your in your lifetime. And it's when we find ourselves next to the one for whom we have a true commonality that is unique. And so David and Jonathan connect on this level in that they realize that they are in some ways exactly the same. It's C.S. Lewis would say this, that friendship arises when two people pull themselves away from the crowd and discover that the other person has the same desire, same belief, same interest. There's that, that sense of like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. And it's in that moment where you realize really almost more that like it's a gift that, that this is a, a brother, this is a sister for whom you have been looking for. Well, David and Jonathan, what is unique about them is that first of all, they both have a huge view of God. That is what is kind of unique about these guys. And then they run wholeheartedly into that. I mean, both of these guys are bold. Both of these guys are willing to kind of jump into the mess and and push beyond kind of what normal people would do. We read that David said, when he was talking about Goliath, that all are going to know that it is not by the sword of the spear that the Lord says, but the battle is the Lord's. Well, Jonathan had said pretty much the same thing like three chapters before. He takes on basically a whole garrison of Philistines, just him and his armor bearer. He's looking up at them. The Philistines had come in, began kind of pushing Israel around. And basically he's like, everyone's sitting around. Jonathan's like, takes his one armor bearer, one guy with him, and he's looking up at him. He's like, what do you think? Can we take him? He basically turns to his armor bearer and says this, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or few. What do you think? And the guy's like, I'm in. It's awesome. Jonathan climbs up there and takes on this whole garrison basically by himself. Well, these guys were knit together by something that was bigger than themselves. They realized in the other person that there's something unique. This is someone who can challenge me, who can even push me. It is pure gift when we find that. But there's also something that Jonathan did about it. He pursued it. That he, he found this friend and he didn't go, oh, that's great. But he also said, you know what? We gotta hang together. We gotta, we gotta push beyond this. We can't just kind of let this go. And so he, he calls David. He, he kind of puts himself out on the line and he says, look, David, we need to, we need to enter into something bigger. Into a covenant, into a commitment. That we would walk together. We can't just kind of let go of each other and hope something happens. Hope we bump into each other later. David, or we read that Jonathan loves David. And he did something about it. Now we gotta pause here. For just a moment, we gotta ask the, we gotta ask a question. That if you kinda know anything about Jonathan and David, it's the elephant in the room in a sense. And the question is this. Are David and Jonathan gay? Because if you were to Google David and Jonathan, immediately what you're gonna pop, what's gonna pop up on your screen are things that most IT departments in any corporation don't want you, don't want on your screen, unfortunately. The question has been has kind of been asked for years. Are David and Jonathan gay? I mean, there's stuff that's in here that to a typical masculinity that we run into in America all the time just doesn't seem to jive. There's these words. What do you mean? He loved him. Well, guys don't we don't love each other. What? He he loved him. As we're going to look at in just a moment, he he stripped off his armor. He stripped off some of the stuff he had and he and he gave it to him. He, they wept together. They held it. Like what? Do, what do you mean? This isn't a typical masculinity. Are David and Jonathan gay? And the answer resoundingly is no. 
And it's no for a number of reasons. Because one of the things is that the, the word for love here that kind of probably initially trips us up is this. The word for love is it's a general word. It could indicate sexual love. It could indicate love for a parent and a child. It could indicate uh, a love between a mother-in-law like Ruth and Naomi. So and and her mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. It could indicate love for neighbor. It's this huge word, okay? It doesn't necessarily indicate that there has to be a sexual relationship at all. Most of the part, at least on the surface, as you look at some of the stuff that, at least the the initial things that popped up were fascinating when I I kind of just Googled some images. One of the images that we saw tonight was that what was going on is that either you wanted to make a point for something that wasn't there, they wanted to sort of, to kind of read something in that wasn't there, or what they were trying to do is they were trying to, like blast the scriptures and basically blow this, say that, kind of write David off. So it's kind of on either side. And the problem is this. And this is the thing that is often so so sad. that This is not, the, the issue of whether this is kind of a homosexual relationship or not, it's a red herring. And it drives me crazy for this reason. Because what it does is it tries to, it, it indicates that there's a whole wrong view of sexuality in, in our society in general. We don't know what to do with close relationships, especially between men and women. We just don't know what to do with them. And so, kind of put stuff aside. Can we have relationships, close relationships, in which we can, we can be in each other's lives, and I'm talking specifically to the guys now, which we can be in each other's lives, in which we don't have to have, we don't have to sort of inject something that really isn't there. I mean, I remember Mike Gaffney and I, which some of you know, used to be the director here at the end. I came down when I was going through seminary. And we got together and we uh, we were going to have breakfast together and we couldn't, we kept trying to find places where we could get something to eat. And it just kind of got funny because we just kind of went from place to place to place and we're like, we just would like to get a nice foamy latte and 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 a, and a nice berry scone or something. You know, it's just like, where can we go? There's nothing open. It's like, wait, is this what girls do? Right? We were just laughing because it's just kind of this sense of like, it, this seems like this is sort of a, a girl thing, and yet it really wasn't. And both of us knew that. And we knew that we had been around enough where to, to, we wanted to get into each other's lives to catch up. I was going to tell him about seminary. He had stuff that was going on down here with him. And yet we were just laughing. Because right at that same time, I think it was in the New York Times, there was a, there was an article that was asking this question, what do we do with intimate male, intimate male relationships and what do we call them and, and all they could come up with well we got to call them mandates because we just don't know what to do with it well this could be a whole separate talk and I, I'm actually going to skip ahead but this is what I this is what really is is most tragic and, I, and again this is for the guys is that when we can't conceive of those close relationships with other men and other guys, because of the idea that there's there's kind of something else loaded into it that's fear that has to have that that sex that somehow that their sex has to be involved in that. We begin getting a, a, a wrong idea of what sexuality is really about. God-given sexuality, good sexuality that drives us into relationship, and sexuality is way way beyond sex. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to just leave that there. Let me just plant that for you though. Sexuality is way beyond sex. It's a part of it, but part of the problem is that we have reduced our sexuality as men and women on how we engage together as physical beings to just about sex, and it just destroys relationships. It shrinks our souls. Because here's the thing, is that when we understand relationships in which we can get really into each other's lives, 
They are the very thing that help to form us to be fully mature men and women. Fully mature, it helps us know what it really means to be a man, a husband, a professional, a friend. In my own life, I would be hung out to dry had I not had close, intimate male friendships. That those friendships, in some ways, I would say, have come because I have been about something bigger. And this is what I mean. That my all of my close friends, for the most part, at least long-term friends, are all Furwood friends. David Hallgren, who's going to be here next week, is one of those guys. I met him way back in the early 90s, which makes me feel really old. But way back then, we worked at Furwood together, and side by side, you're pouring yourself out all day as you're, as you're giving yourself to something bigger than yourself. And you begin to find a commonality, something that is unique, something that, that is amazing that you have to hold on to. But it, it's those guys that I've then continued on with, that I've said, you know, we gotta, we got to be in an accountability group. we got to meet regularly. we got to get into the Word. It's those guys that I've continued, that I've pursued, that have pursued me when I've been lame. Those are the ones that have carried through for me. Those are the ones who have helped keep me going when I wanted to give up. It is when you give yourself to something bigger than you, when you pursue and you you make a commitment to one another, when you have found that person, that you can grow into this thing that will open up a whole world that is deep and rich. And so the question is, are you pursuing something that is bigger than yourself? Or are you waiting for someone to come around and fill in this hole that you have, this relational hole that is God-given, that is a good thing? Now, I'll hammer on this again and again. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We have to move on with our lives. We can't wait around. And this is maybe sometimes I would say primarily for women. So often what we want to do is we want to find a husband and that's going to kind of solve everything. What we're doing is we're hanging around waiting for someone to show up. And the people that would show up are not the people we're going to want to be with. The people that we want to be with are those that are out doing the stuff that we want to do that we want to give ourselves to. And so get on with your life. Start pursuing the stuff that matters to you. Whether that be being creative in some particular venture, climbing, getting outside, going on a a mission trip, root down into community, commit into a small group. You're not going to like it, I know. That sense of committing, and at least for a short time, we, we resist against it. And yet that is the very thing that opens up new doors. You will never... Get it as close to somebody sitting on a beach in Cancun for two weeks as you will going and pouring out your life on a short-term mission trip somewhere. I mean, short-term mission trips are a wonderful thing, but sometimes the best benefit that you get is for you. Well, we move on. Let me move on. And we read this. Where it says that Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, and along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. So what is what is going on here? It is, in some ways, an odd thing. He starts kind of taking all the stuff and, and giving it to, to David. And But what, what he's doing there is essentially he's saying that there is something that is truly important that is going on in the other's life. See, Jonathan knows that his dad is done. Jonathan knows that there's another one that is going to arise. He knows that. In fact, that's what he's really concerned about. He's not so much concerned about his own power and what's going to happen. And so when he gives his robe, it it confirms something. It it confirms that friendship. But what he is also saying is he is explicitly recognizing that, David, you will be king. 
And from my place of authority, I'm going to recognize that and I'm also going to help it. I'm going to encourage it. Even if it means that you are going to surpass me. And this is huge. Can we recognize in each other's lives what is truly exciting? I mean, this is what we long for so much. To have someone look at us and go, there is something amazing going on in your life and I'm going to call it out. I'm going to recognize it. I'm going to celebrate it. And yet so often it's hard for that to happen, isn't it? Because because we so much long ourselves to have someone recognize that. And yet what we end up doing is shooting ourselves in the foot because what we want to do is we want to go around and we want people to notice us. So we want to, we want everyone to look at what we're doing. And then sometimes we even get so threatened when someone else gets in the spotlight because we long to be in the spotlight ourselves. Someone else gets in the spotlight. I can't recognize that. Someone else is getting paid attention to. I can't stand that. I want that. And so I jump in and I, tr- and I try to, to tell you what is unique about me instead of being able to recognize what is awesome about you, to celebrate that, to even say, there's something unique that's going on in your life. I would love for that same thing to happen to me. But guess what? I'm going to recognize that and I'm going to celebrate that. In fact, I'm going to help you run with that. You guys, that takes an incredible amount of maturity. If we learn anything from Jonathan, the onus is on the one with the greater perceived power. And the amazing thing about Jonathan is that he is able somehow to get beyond himself. This isn't about Jonathan needing kind of to tag along with David to feel good about himself. But the incredible strength of Jonathan is that he can look at David and and not have to kind of hold his spot he, he's gotten what we've talked about earlier, that it is a lot more than titles. That titles don't actually give you what you want as much as you think. He can give up his title because he can recognize that God is doing something amazing. And that is Jonathan's incredible strength. And so are you surrounding yourself with those that have the security to be able to say, I'm going to recognize something in you even if... I long for it myself. Are you that person? Or do you always have to draw the attention to yourself? I don't know if I mentioned it here or not, but one of the things that's been so interesting, I had a friend tell me that, that's, uh, that does, uh, has a counseling um, practice. Talk to me. There's some research out there that, that just makes sense intuitively when you think about it because we're so narcissistic. That the most interesting people are the people who are interested Okay, the most we think the most interesting people are those who are interested in, in us. Man, that guy was fascinating. He asked me about stuff all night long, right? And yet, there's something really wonderful about that, though, as well, isn't there? It's that sense that the interesting people are those that are able to get outside of themselves to say, "I want to, I want to learn about something that is beyond me." Can we be about more than ourselves? Well, Saul, on the other hand, shows exactly how weak he is. Because as David begins to rise, his popularity grows. People, women dancing in the streets begin to shout, Saul has killed his thousands and David's his tens of thousands. And man, I wish that still happened nowadays. Wouldn't that be nice? Nobody dances in the streets anymore for stuff. I don't know. Maybe we'll see something in November. Who knows? It'll get weird. But... You can contrast, though, it's interesting. Saul gets so, so fearful 
It's a wonderful contrast to Jonathan who's able to recognize, hey man, this is not, I don't have, my, my identity's not on the line. I can celebrate David all I want. I don't have to worry about that. Anyways, Saul begins to figure out ways to undermine. He puts David in all kinds of interesting situations to try to get him to, to be put in a compromised position where he can get killed and yet David only grows. Even though he does some, ends up doing some gruesome and brutal things, he, kind of at the behest of Saul, he, he grows in power more and more. And pretty soon we, we run into chapter 19 where Saul is just, he's done trying to maneuver behind the scenes and he comes right out and he says this. That Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was fond of David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go to a hiding place and stay there. And I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you. And I will tell you what I find out. So Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all of Israel. Interesting that he says that, isn't it? The Lord won that. And you saw it, and you were glad. Why then would you want to do wrong to an innocent man like David, killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. And David gets pulled in. Well, the third thing that we need to to recognize in the midst of this story is that Jonathan is an advocate. So Jonathan does two things. He speak, he warns of David of, of danger, but then he also speaks well of David before his father. He reminds Saul, remember what, what had happened, and, and don't do the wrong thing. Don't, don't get yourself in a bind you don't need to get into. I mean, a lot of us don't experience having someone who's out to kill us. Hopefully not. I hope you're not having people talk about how to bump you off. If you are, we got other issues and we can talk about that. But a lot of us know what it's like, though, to have a friend, or perhaps on the other side, to not have a friend who has our back. A friend who will carry you through the mess when it's difficult, when it costs something, when you might have to put their neck on the line, even if it just means speaking up in behalf of you. And if we continue on, I'm going to I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to become biblical translators. Jonathan speaks well again of David and 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 defends him. And as uh, Saul begins to realize that there's something going on between the two of them, and so he's simply saying he's simply kind of sticking up for for Jonathan. But Saul realizes that there's there's kind of there's something going on. We'll we'll talk a little bit about the, that dynamic later. But he says this. He gets he gets fired. He gets Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse and a rebellious woman. What do you think he's saying there? Okay, write it down. Turn and slip a paper. We'll, we'll work on things like, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I love the Old Testament in this way. I'm not sure what the New Living says, but I'll get back to you on it. And then he throws, and then he throws a spear at him. I mean, Jonathan puts his neck on the, the line. Well, how do you know? Who are those people who can, who will back you up no matter what? Who you know you don't have to fear. You don't always have to be looking over your shoulder, wondering if they'll be there for you. You don't have to worry what they're saying in, in the next room or, or at the table across the way where you're eating lunch. You don't have to worry if, the, if they're talking about you. I mean, some of you guys, I'm sure, have had the experience that I have had. I mean, I think we all have. Of that sense of, of feeling like somebody is just totally selling you out. 
They would say that you're that they're your friend, and yet, given the opportunity, if they have the opportunity to advance, if they have the opportunity to get ahead, they're going to sell you out as quick as they as quick as they can. Well, one of the things that we need desperately is to know that we can be safe. It really is an issue of trust. Who are those you can trust? And are you one of those people that are trustworthy? That others can feel safe with you? Can feel safe in your own friendship? I, uh, I've recognized, this is a confession, that, and I've gotten better in this over the years, that often I would bump heads with guys. Um, certain guys. Guys that really were probably just like me. Uh, early on, some of my friends at camp, some of my best friends were guys that in the very first week I knew that I just could not stand. I could not stand them. The next week were David and Jonathan best friends. And it's that sense of what needed to be established is trust. And, and one of the things, especially if you have someone who's, like both of these guys are really capable. If you have someone who's really capable, one of the best things that you can have, that person can either be a threat to you or that person can be the person that pushes you the fastest, the furthest, that you go the distance with, but it all depends on trust. And the issue for us is that can we be those people that can gather those around us who can really push us, not those that we never have to worry about, but those who can really stand shoulder to shoulder. And this is this is a great insight for us as we think about who it is that we want to marry. Do you want to marry someone who you, who you know you can kind of totally control? Or do you want to be able to stand shoulder to shoulder with somebody? knowing that that person is totally capable, but also knowing and being secure enough to know that this person is totally trustworthy. I don't have to worry. Well, finally, what we learn is that Jonathan is also an encourager. And in chapter 20, we find that Saul has gone around Jonathan's back. He knows that Jonathan is in some ways for uh, David. And he begins, he he sends some assassins to uh, kill David in the middle of the night. David flees. And who's the one person he runs to? Well, Jonathan. I mean, it's kind of amazing. In some ways, he's kind of potentially running into the lion's den, yet he knows Jonathan is the one in which he can feel safe. He's the one that he can bring kind of all the junk that he is dealing with, the mess of his life. And Jonathan is profoundly an encourager. He knows what it means to encourage. He he can sit with David and, and take on the drama, take on the rage. To not try to solve things immediately. I mean, David kind of comes in, kind of out of control a little bit, going, you know, what what have I done? What have I done? You know, if I've wronged anything, why don't you just kill me yourself? I mean, there's the dramas through the roof, right? John just kind of rolls with it, kind of lets him come out. He goes on and he affirms him. He says, you know, I'm with you. You just need to know that. An encourager lets you know, I'm with you. What do you need? Whatever you need, I'll, I'll do it. And let me remind you, that God is for you. God is doing something unique in your life. And then he goes on and finally he encourages David to, let me remind you of your calling and where you're going. You're going to do great things. David comes in running, gasping for breath, just freaked out. And he leaves this interaction with a sense of like, I have hope. I can move forward in the future. It's that place that place where we can come when we are frazzled is one of the, the best places that we can run to. It's the, I would say on the other side, it, it's a privilege, it's sacred ground when someone can come 
to you and feel safe enough to come in frazzled, to come in unedited and be able to say, I, I, I don't know what is going on, but everything is falling apart and I need a safe place simply to, to weep even. I mean, I, I've had that and I've been frustrated when I haven't been able to be honest. I mean, there have been times where I, I've even had to kind of, kind of push out of my own pride and as I've had people, as I tried to just say, here's, here's what's going on. I'm not throwing in the towel on anything. I'm not giving up, but I'm discouraged. I'm just flat out discouraged. And sometimes I, oh gosh, what's the consequences of that? Con- no consequences. Just hear me. I just need a place to vent. But then also on the other end, to be able to have a, 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 of a sense of knowing that someone feels safe enough with you. To know that they can be, receive a word, they can be honest in who they are, and then they can receive a word that, man, God is still in this, I am with you. And don't forget, God has not abandoned you, He is gonna continue the work that He started in you. Well, re- Eugene Peterson would remark this, that if it hadn't have been for the friendship with Jonathan, David, this incredible man with this incredible call, probably would have been sidetracked. He would have been sidetracked into a place of bitterness, he would have responded back simply with the same kind of violence that he got. He would have just been killed. He would have been sidetracked. And he, he reflects in his commentary on, uh, on the life of David um, that there's often no finish that is worthy of the start, that David's fantastic beginning would have just simply fizzled out. See, the main character in David's story, at least in this chapter, was not David, it was that friendship. Man, he was a man who was in the mess just like the rest of us. And yet his mess was boundaried by this incredible friendship, this friendship that helped to form it into the king who would one day rule. See, friendships do that. They always come in the midst of mess and they boundary kind of the garbage that we have to deal with. Those deep friendships, those friendships that are both a gift and that we both pursue and put work into. They're those things that help us to live into the callings, to finish well the things that started well. They teach us what it means to be, to be men and women, to grow into full maturity. They teach us what it means to, to be the kind of spouse that we one day want to be. They teach us what it means to continue in there when our marriages seem like they're falling apart. They teach us the character that we need to to push through the long haul and those relationships that we will have with others. Good merit, good friendships. And I, you guys, I've had this where I've been frustrated in my own marriage and yet I've had to deal one on one with Shannon so often, but I'm so thankful that Shannon has people that she can go to who will hear her and then point her back to me. And I have had those people in my life as well who have heard me and, and said, yeah, I get it. I get it. But head back. Keep a soft heart. Well, friendship is a gift, but it's not easy. But it is that thing that will cause us to be able to run at giants. The great thing, the good news of the gospel is this, is that it might not be easy, it might be difficult, it might be frightening. We might not even really know where to start. And yet, it is Christ who has called us friends. And so he has given us a model as well as he has led the way for us. He is the one who has committed himself to us before we ever would commit ourselves to him. He is the one who has stripped himself down, as Paul would say in Philippians 2, that he stripped himself of everything that made him look like a king and said, I'm going to come after you because you're that important. And I am your advocate. 
I am for you. Fundamentally, I am for you. The writer of Hebrews would say that, that he sits in the throne and that whenever there are accusations that come, he says, hey, I got it. Taken care of. He's with me. She's with me. He's our encourager. He walks with us. The ancients, to the ancients, as C.S. Lewis would reflect, friendship seemed like the happiest and the most fully human of all the loves. It was kind of the highest end. He also reflects that friendship is that thing that the authorities so often were, were really worried about because in friendship we get that strength to be able to push against any other system that would tell us to, to sit down, to be quiet, to stop dreaming. In friendships, revolutions begin. So let's cultivate those. Let's run hard towards those. Let's look for them. Let's be people who can develop deep, lasting friendships that move beyond simply connecting to really knowing and being known. I'm going to ask Tim to come up, and we're just going to take time to sit. sit. I don't know what it is that God wants to be able to say to you um, tonight. But uh, we need to have that time to, to pause for a moment. Maybe there's somebody on your Facebook page that you need to follow up with a face-to-face meeting. If there's somebody that you need to actually put some time and effort into to pursue. Maybe it's simply praying, God, I just I do not know what it means to be a good friend. Where do I even start?